I mentioned to another brother this morning that we're going to go over this almost like a reconnaissance flight from about 10,000 feet looking at 11 verses. That's a lot of, of content, a lot of information, at least it is for me, to try to get through. But as, going, as I went through this and studied it, it was very interesting and exciting for me to think about hopefully coming back to this and then finding the details and digging in deep in those at some point in the future because there's so much to be gained here. Uh, never forget, as we study First Timothy, the context of this letter. It's written from the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy. It is a letter written in desperate times for the church in Ephesus. Where Timothy is trying to hold ground, defend faith, and gain back the high ground of truth from false teachers, ex-elders, deceiving spirits, and teachings of supernatural demons. The leadership cast here is a shambles. Some of them have actually taken up arms for the enemy. And it is a war zone in Ephesus. Paul knows Timothy needs godly men to come alongside, to join spiritual arms and defend the gospel as well as Christ's church. In these 11 verses this morning, Paul lays out for Timothy what he must become and what he must look for and train in the servants for the cause of Christ. Personally, these scriptures this morning have been a wonderful experience for me. They have taught me, convinced me, and literally brought about change in my life. I am doing some things differently in ministry as a result of what God has taught me in these 11 verses. It's been very valuable. I want to grow in Christ. I want to be a good and effective soldier on the battlefield for Christ. And I hope you do too. If so, the Lord lays out the training plan and the goals before us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that your word is living and powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword and pierces even to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Father, I pray that your sword, your two-edged sword of the word would be extra sharp this morning as we dig into these scriptures. For we need this, Lord. Many of the same challenges face, facing Timothy are, are challenges that are facing your church today and will face us in the future. We have faced in the past. And Lord, in some degree, we are facing now. We, we need you. We need this instruction. Please feed us from this. Please change us. Thank you for the work that, that you're already doing. We know that your word will not return to you a void, but will accomplish what you desire and achieve the purpose for which you sent it. Lord, give us hungry, soft, pliable hearts that you can take this morning and mold in whatever way you would want to. Lord, please speak way beyond me, your stumbling servant, and, and use your word to change us and bring glory to your name. In your name we pray, amen. Prioritize godliness is where this begins. True or false faith. Uh, Paul is telling Timothy, commit to truth. In verse 6 he says, If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. When he says instruct, he's using an interesting word there. That can be translated in pointing out. Or even suggest. Which is a much milder command militarily than Paul has been giving to Timothy so far. It means to literally place underneath. And Guthrie offers that the picture here may be stepping stones placed under the feet over treacherous ground. There is treacherous ground in Ephesus. Timothy is urged by Paul to place the teachings he is receiving in this letter like stepping stones for solid, safe footing in what would be a treacherous minefield of spiritual warfare in the Ephesian church. Timothy, make these things clear for your people. And if you do, 
You will be a good, it's kalos, it means noble or honest. You will be a worthy minister of Jesus Christ. Paul describes the work of service as good in chapter 3 verse 1. And here, now he says the worker or servant is good if he fulfills that good ministry. We desire to be good servants, good ministers of Christ. A minister is a servant. It, it's diakonos. And it's a simple lang- in simple language, it means useful. Five verses prior to this statement, Paul told Timothy that inevitably some will depart from faith. Some will follow after deceptive spirits, doctrines of demons. Apparently included in the departing are elders. Not simply those living on the edge of the fellowship or demonstrating shallow commitment, but elders, church leaders like Hymenaeus and Alexander, men whom Paul has already had to remove from that church. So Paul tells Timothy what to look for in his men and what to develop in those who will be good or profitable ministers of Christ. And I understand as we look at this, it really is pointed in the idea of raising up ministers, raising up elders. But please understand, men and women both, the character traits, the practices, the application of this is necessary for any of you if you want to be effective. And if you can master these things, your life will be changed in its effectiveness for Jesus Christ. Maturing ministers, as well as all who would desire to serve Christ and His bride, are to be nourished in the words of faith and good teaching. According to USA Today, a National Football League training table usually consists of foods like chicken, rice, fruit, eggs, and greens. The idea being to provide as much lean muscle building proteins as possible, while also boosting the body's energy with the consumption of fruits and greens. Like professional athletes at a training table, Set with a specially prepared diet of a specified level of proteins, carbs, fats, and nutrients. God's servants, you all, are to be nourished through the Word of God and on the application of that Word. This is indispensable if you are to serve Him at your highest potential. Your maximum performance as a servant of God will only come through a complete diet on God's Word. Jeremiah the prophet in chapter 15 said, When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. For I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. Servants of Christ should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. So Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 4. Continual nourishment. Continual nourishment by the word of God makes the difference between the man who talks a big show and the one whom God actually uses to build his kingdom. They, the men nourished, the women nourished on the word of God, are the ones he places in the battle against Satan. John wrote, I have written to you young men, Because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Constant nourishment on the word of God through reading, memorizing, meditating, even teaching will make the servant of God diligent to present himself approved to God. A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That person will be complete Thoroughly equipped for every good work if you will nourish yourself in the scriptures continually. One commentator said, The issue is not how good a communicator a man is, or how well he knows the culture and the contemporary issues, or even how well he knows the particular vicissitudes of his flock. The issue is how well he knows the word of God. Since God's revelation perfectly assesses all issues in every time and every life and addresses them with the divine will. 
The issue is how well he knows the word of God. End quote. By God's providence, Timothy has been continually nourished and carefully following the word of God as long as Paul has known him. For he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, he says, that from childhood or infancy, some of your translations will read, that from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. How did he do that? Did he, was he just a, an amazing child prodigy that picked up the word at, at an early age? And it, No. His mother and grandmother taught him daily, constantly. Paul makes mention of them. Parents here, your opportunity is great. Put yourself to that task so that your children are raised from infancy in the Word of God. And many of you have done that. Now, while God's servants must feed constantly on the Word of God, they must also reject what is false. Reject the false. Verse 7 says, But reject profane and old wives' fables. Reject means having nothing to do with. You shun it. You avoid what? It's false teaching. Do not get near it. Do not try to find value in it. Do not seek some shred of truth. Reject it. And this is a caution. You can turn on Christian radio and you can get a plethora of nonsense of sugar-coated candies that have no nourishment for you. And you can also find their meat in the Word. You can find solid nourishment from the Word of God through some of these programs. But be very careful. If you detect things that are not really from this Word of God, don't sit there and say, well, I'll just, you know, I'll chew it up and I'll spit out the bones. That only goes so far. That can be very dangerous. So be very careful and wise on that. Profane here, profane means worldly, irreverent, and unhallowed, hallowed. Profane is actually the opposite of holy. And old wives' fables, well, Paul doesn't have something against older women. He merely is using a cultural, historical way of labeling an idea that has no value. Whether it be an old widow or whether it be a young married man. It's a myth. Don't hold on to it. Fables is the Greek word muthos. It's from which the English word myth comes. Myths. As Paul pointed out in chapter 4 verse 1, the ultimate origin of false doctrines is from demons. It is not just crafted by men who want to dishonor God. Behind that, according to Paul, are deceptive spirits and doctrines of demons. Timothy and all of God's servants are to stay away from them. Do not mess with them out of curiosity or develop relationships or to look for something redeemable in them. Reject them. Fight against them. And he goes on to say, exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little. Timothy, he's saying, are you after temporary or eternal Reward. There is a cheap gain. The ESV and the NASB read here, on the other hand, or rather, meaning in place of worldly, silly myths, exercise or train, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Muthos and godliness are the most extreme of opposites. Discipline, train, it's the word gymnasia. It indicates the rigorous self-sacrificing discipline which an athlete undertakes. As you hear that word, gymnasia, it has the sound of a gymnasium. And that's where it comes from. Paul says that Timothy is to discipline himself and to keep on disciplining. Don't stop. It's a continuous thing. He and we who seek to serve Christ should constantly be training ourselves for godliness. So what is godliness? A fellow by the name of Trench, R.C. Trench, says, It is that mingled fear and love which together constitute the piety of man toward God. Calvin called it the beginning, middle, 
an end of Christian living. MacArthur says godliness expresses the reality of reverence, piety, and true spiritual virtue. Riken says godliness means reverence. In this command, Paul speaks of godliness and he inserts the well-acquainted world of athletic competition to make a critical comparison here. Bodily exercise, he says, profits a little. Well, a more accurate translation, really, of that verse says, bodily exercise profits little. Paul is really not trying to encourage Christian servants to make sure they get their time in at the gym each week. In fact, bodily exercise is not always even athletic. But it does require overcoming the flesh. One commentator described a friend who is an aspiring opera singer. He worked to correct a flaw in the way his body produces sound. It has something to do with gaining better control over the opening in his throat. It will take perhaps a year, a year of painstaking vocal work each day for him to progress to the next level of his expertise. At this stage, his voice lessons slowly proceed note by note. That is another example of physical exercise, bodily exercise. Yes, there is value in taking care of our earthly bodies while we still live in them. But that is not the point Paul is making here. The comparison is that there can be a huge amount of great effort, hard work in physical exercise, but the profit is comparatively little. And it is always temporary. Paul goes on to say, but godliness, on the other hand, godliness is profitable for all things. Having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. It is a priceless reward. A priceless reward. Bodily discipline, as popular as it was in ancient Ephesus, and it, I don't know how it could have been any more popular there than it is now, really has little value. It benefits the physical body, but for a very, very short duration. But godliness is profitable for everything. Not only for all that is in life now that you're going through, all that will come to pass in your life, but for equipping and preparing us for the eternity that lies ahead. It has no end in its value. There is no comparison here. Paul does not intend to make it an either or but rather to show the shallow fleeting nature of something that many of us put great discipline and training into compared to the immeasurable and eternal riches contained in godliness, which unfortunately most of us have far less commitment toward. Paul highlights this value assessment, declaring in verse 9 that this is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. So just how precious is godliness? Well, it comes at a steep cost, but it reaps unrivaled confidence. The cost and the confidence. The cost. Verse 10 says, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach or strive. Men must labor. It literally means to toil to the point of exhaustion. Have you spiritually toiled to the point of exhaustion, brothers and sisters? Has that happened? I, I have to admit, rarely. That's what we're to do. Strive for godliness to the point of exhaustion. And strive or suffer reproach. And it depends on your translation. To strive is the word agonizomai, which is where we get the word agonize. It means to struggle intensely. If the word is suffer reproach, it is so, which means to defame, chide, or to taunt. Both translations portray an exhausting work with a great struggle, which may include a struggle against those who oppose you, who become your enemies. They mock you, they taunt you, because of your stand for Christ. Hebrews 10, verse 32 through 34 records, 
But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. But look at the resilience here. Look at the resilience of the faiths of the faith of these who were so spitefully treated. It goes on to say in Hebrews, For you had compassion on me in my chains, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. That is not a misreading there. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Reach for that. Strive for that. Most of us have an abundance of possessions. Could we joyfully accept the plundering? Or would we demand our rights? Would we demand this? Would we have these expectations? Do you know that you have a, an enduring possession for yourself in heaven? 1 Corinthians 9.24 speaks of that striving. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body, then bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Again, MacArthur says, Ministers of God are engaged in an eternal work with the destiny of men's souls at stake. The urgency of that work drives them on through weariness, loneliness, and struggle. J. Oswald Sanders. If he is unwilling to pay the price of fatigue for his leadership, it will always be mediocre. True leadership always exacts a heavy toll on the whole man. And the more effective the leadership is, the higher the price to be paid. The servant of God labors to exhaustion and strives against all opposition with complete confidence. Confidence. Verse 10 goes on to say, Because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. The minister of Christ, his strength is his hope in the living God. Hope, Riken points out, is the perfect tense here, and it implies a continuous state of hope. The idea is of an ongoing and certain hope. End quote. That hope does not waver. It does not cease. And it is no dead idol whom the citizens of Ephesus who worshipped Diana and Artemis had placed their claim on. Who they relied on. No. Ours is the living God. And we spoke about that last week. As different as night and day, black and white, death and life, are all other religions when placed beside the living God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. This stark contrast is declared by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. He is our God. He walks among us. Do you realize that? Do you, are you conscious of that? Oh, we should be. He walks among us. He is our Father. And you know what that means. We are his sons. We are his daughters. It is his, his claim upon us. And they will be my sons and daughters. He lives. Dead idols on the other hand. 
again are described in Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold. They are the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. And those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. The living to God, the living God is declared by the Old Testament prophets this way in Joshua 3, verse 10. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. That living God will be victorious over every enemy. 1 Samuel chapter 17, Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? He was speaking about Goliath. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He hasn't got a chance in the mind of David. For this is the living God. The living God is the God of the New Testament writers, beginning with Matthew chapter 16. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Acts 14, to Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas were saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you. And we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that are in them. And then in Hebrews 10, chapter 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He is living, He is living, He is living. And there are numerous verses that emphasize this. Because God is living, we fix our hope on Him. This is an unfailing, constant, confident hope that He is Savior of all men, says Paul here, especially, especially of those who believe. But what does that mean? It is a statement that's controversial and it's interpreted in several ways. One is that God will save all men of all time from all peoples. This is called universalism. And it contradicts the scriptural purpose for Christ's death on the cross, His resurrection, and the requirement of faith and repentance. We know that God does not save all men. Many are cast into the lake of fire for eternity by the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. So it cannot mean that, because God has done what He has done through the gospel to save us from that, and not all are saved. Some say Christ and salvation are offered to all people, but not all receive Him. Others see that the word soter or Savior here can also mean helper. They reason that this does not mean forgiveness of sin, but that God in His common grace is the helper and protector of all men in need. Another is that God is a Savior of all peoples, Jews and Gentiles, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. This does not mean every individual person, but that He is a Savior of those He has elected from every people group across the planet in history. What do you think? Well, I, I will give you what I think. <laughs> I agree that God is a helping type of Savior. And He extends common grace on all men. Otherwise, all of us would have perished long ago in our sinfulness. God is long-suffering toward all of us. And I am confident that God saves men from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Praise the Lord for His graciousness. But, this verse says that He is the Savior of all men, not will be. It is a great declaration of the living God being the foundation of our hope here, and it seems to elicit more than a common grace to all people. Nor do history, as well as life experience, give evidence that God extends more common grace to those who believe than to unbelievers. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. 
But the word especially is especially important here. Look at that verse. Wake up. If, if, if this is the time, wake up for this. This is important. Especially is important in this phrase. It is the Greek word malasta. And it can be translated actually as to be precise. Or in other words. Philip Ryken points out that thus the verse should read as follows. God is the Savior of all men. That is to say, He is the Savior of those who believe. A.T. Hansen says the Apostle is not saying that God saves believers more than He saves others. He is simply modifying His general statement that God is the Savior of all men by adding the limitation that you cannot be saved unless you believe. I hope that helps some and gives some clarity. Have established now, or having established the priority of godliness, Paul moves in a direction here in verse 11, and he tells Timothy how to live it out. How do you live godliness? Well, you practice it. You put it into action. And you do it over and over again. You practice godliness. He's commanding here that this, these things that he is writing, that, Tim, that Timothy should command and teach these to the people in Ephesus. Timothy is to explain to the church what the truth is and that they are to do it. Now this may often not be well received, yet when it is most necessary, it is often least popular. And that's what's going on in Ephesus and that's really what's going on in the culture around us and, and in much of the church today. It is most necessary, these things that follow, these things that we're going to look at. And perhaps in some ways, they're most detested. They're least popular. Paul writes this imperative again in his next letter to Timothy. He says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convict, or excuse me, convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. That's that muthos again. They will choose that, Timothy. But you... You be watchful in all things. Endure affliction. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Timothy, they may all flock that direction, but you, you be watchful in all things. You endure affliction that will come. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And I, I want to just Grab one phrase there. Do the work of an evangelist. I keep that near to my heart because I don't think Timothy necessarily had the gift of evangelism. But pastors and servants of Christ, people who love their Savior, will do the work of an evangelist. Some will have tremendous, perhaps outward success. Some may be having tremendous success in the realm of heaven that they don't ever know about. But we are to do the work of an evangelist and fulfill our ministry. Timothy, you've got to be an example, verse 12 says. Timothy, you've got to be an example. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Now this is a commandment that requires a pretty quick explanation. Uh, let no one despise my youth. Well, how am I supposed to do that? Well, immediately Paul sets him on course. Action is required to dissolve the disdain of others around him. Action is required to dissolve that disdain. You see, Timothy was not a youth by our standards. He's probably in his late 30s by this point. But he's still about 30 years younger than his mentor Paul. He was a neotes, or a youth, and it describes those under 40 years of age. That was sort of the break-off point, those under 40. 
He was considered a youth. In the eyes of the community leaders, Timothy lacked experience and wisdom that came only with greater age. Timothy would have to earn their respect. Thomas Brooks said, Example is the most powerful rhetoric. Example is the most powerful rhetoric. Another commentator said, A minister's life is his most powerful message and must reinforce what he says or he may as well not say it. Paul said, Therefore I urge you, imitate me. The writer of Hebrews says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. So Timothy is to focus on five areas. Six in the uh, authorized version, the, the Texas Receptus. Guthrie writes, The qualities in which Timothy is to excel are those in which youth is so often deficient. Yet for that reason they would stand out the more strikingly. And you know, I, I've heard a couple of messages this week on these passages. And one of the fellows said, one of the difficulties for youth is they want to come into a situation and with one huge energetic step accomplish what older men took hundreds of steps year after year to get to. And they don't realize what is included there and, and, and how deep it had to come from to get to some of those points. We need both. I am so grateful. You, you, I, I say it over and over again. I cannot be more grateful for you young men and women and what Jarvis shared earlier true is true about the families. But not just even about the families but about your spiritual maturity in the Word and your desire to honor Christ. But I'm also thankful for the, youth, for the few older men that we have who have walked the trail and been up and down and have been picked up by Christ at many times and have spent literally years in the Word. But Timothy was in a disadvantage in that way before these men. So he's supposed to focus on these things. I would say this. We don't have many of our young people here. We have some of our much younger people. If you want to be listened to, if you want to be respected, it is not impossible. It is not impossible even if you are young. Diligently work on these areas that Paul lays out. You from whoever can read and write up through 39. Diligently focus on these things. And us older guys, make some repentance and conviction on these things as well. If you want to be listened to in respect, you follow these and you will stand out. People will listen and they will give you opportunity. The first one, word or speech. Colossians says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Let that conversation be full of grace. Hold on. Think before you speak. Pray before you speak. Let your conversation be seasoned with salt of the grace of salt, or the salt of grace. Ephesians 4, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. An unwholesome word can mean a lot of different things. It can be words spoken in anger. It can be dishonesty. It can be cursing. Guard that tongue. That tongue is so difficult. It needs to be a matter of prayer for us. We know that because James writes this in chapter 3. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man. Able also to bridle the whole body. And but he goes on. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest 
a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird or reptile and creature of the sea is tamed than has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. If you ever wanted to study preaching and looking for metaphors and illustrations, that little paragraph is packed with different pictures about what the tongue does. It's, it's amazing what James piles into that. And that is because of the intensity of the problem. He wants to drive this home because it has done so much damage. You have been there. You know the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's the most foolish thing I've ever heard. As one pastor I heard earlier this week, he said, I long ago recovered from any sticks and stones that hit my body. But there are words that I heard as a young man that still pierce my heart. And we've been on both sides of it. You have been the injured, but you have been the injurer. The one has done that as well. I have been the injurer so often. Speech is so important. Master that. Strive for it. You must be continually pursuing godliness. Conduct. How you live your life daily. Richard Baxter cautioned, lest we may unsay with your lives that which we say with our tongues. Again in James 3, who is wise and understanding among you, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. 1 Peter 1 verse 14, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Lead a holy life. Get that conduct in line with that first item, your speech. Live a holy life. It is so vital. Paul goes over and over in his scriptures here about the importance of a clean conscience. No hypocrisy. Then he gives a third one, love. It's agapal. This is selfless, self-sacrificing love. It looks out for the best of the person you love. It's like Christ laying down his life for the church. It's like husbands laying their lives down for their wives. Jesus commanded it already and said, this is how you do it. John 15, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. If you love like that, people will not look down on your youth. They will marvel at what an unusual person God is raising up in their midst. Do you hear that, young people? I want to just emphasize that because sometimes I know you feel left out. But if you love like this, that you lay your lives down for others, you will not be looked down. People will marvel at what an unusual person God is raising up in their midst. And a fourth one here in the one version is spirit. And Calvin says, by the word spirit, I understand the ardor of zeal for God. Zeal for God. If it be not thought better to be interpreted more generally, to which I have no objection. So he doesn't nail it down. Matthew Henry says, though, that it is spiritual mindedness in spiritual worship. And we can look at Matthew 22, verse 37. Jesus said to that lawyer, that scribe trying to trap him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The next one, faith. Set an example in faith. And this is not faith in Christ. This is faithfulness to Christ and to others. You must be dependable. Timothy, if you demonstrate faith, it means you are consistent. What you say, you do. People can count on you. Timothy, you don't show up a few times or you show up late and unprepared. People will look down on you. Be faithful. 1 Corinthians 4. Moreover, it is required in stewards 
that one be found faithful. Purity. Now this Greek word for purity points to sexual purity. 2 Timothy 2, flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Pursue those things. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace. All on your own. No, with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. That means pursue this with the church. If you're struggling in this area of purity, Struggle together with the brothers in the church. Let us be in prayer. Let us be together. Let us fight this fight. Proverbs 7, verse 25 says, it gives a warning about lust and immoral relationships. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for she has cast down many wounded. And all who were slain by her were strong men, Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. Riken exhorts, they must begin immediately to apply the gospel of faith and repentance to any area of sexual sin and to practice godly discipline discipline in what they look at, what they think about, what they say, and what they touch. How can you overcome sin in your life? Well, the writer of Psalms concludes... How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Whole heart I have sought you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And Timothy goes on. He says, Till I come, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. That to me is the idea of we must prize God's word. It must be of the greatest value to us. Until Paul arrives back in Ephesus, Timothy is to give attention. That means to devote time. This implies, according to the translators, a previous private preparation. He's not just supposed to Mark off a little time that will be read on Sunday mornings. But he is to prepare for this. He is to prepare on his own for this. Timothy is to pray over, study, meditate on, and get ready for the public reading of God's Word. And you can imagine in the first century church, there were very few copies of Old Testament Scriptures. They were all painstakingly hand copied and often carefully preserved in places of worship. Because of this, Very few of the people who gathered as the early church had access to the Word of God. The public reading of the Word was crucial. And in these settings, the letters of the apostles to the churches, they would also be read. So you read the Word publicly. Exhortation. It means to urge or command a response. And that response could be cognitive. It could be a response where the people gain a new understanding. You could be exhorting them to have a new attitude. One that gives a greater heart for God against sin or something like that. A different attitude. Or it could be a volitional exhortation where you're getting them to make a decision about something that God has said here. Something that they will do now according to the will of God. And a fourth one would be a behavioral change. The exhortation to cause them to change in action. A change of living. Now, if you think of those four, cognitive, attitudinal, volitional, and behavioral, you probably realize that hearing Scripture read and taught can very well result in all four of these at once. For example, a person can gain an understanding of the power of God's Word in fighting against sin as you read something like 2 Timothy 3.16 or Hebrews 4.12. That can result in a greater awe attitude of the power of God through His Word. Look at what it can do. Which can elicit a decision then to memorize and meditate regularly on the Word of God. If your attitude has changed, if you understand something new, perhaps then you will make a decision to anchor yourself in that. And your behavior then will change. 
That means then it brings out a daily time of actually writing out, meditating, and memorizing. Something like the book of Romans. That's just an example. How through exhortation, the heart, the mind, the actions of life can be changed. And then he speaks of doctrine. It's the word teaching. Timothy is also to explain the scripture that was read. Now this is vitally important in our day. Because of how far we are removed from the original writing of the scripture. We're removed by 2,000 years. We're removed by language from Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. We're removed from geography. Very few few of us have been to the land uh, of Uh, Asia Minor to what is now Turkey or into the Middle East where Christ had his ministry. The culture. uh, A lot of times when we read about the wedding celebrations and different things, we've got to really dig in there. And we need somebody to help us. We need to look at commentators. We need to listen to see what other teachers are saying because these things will help us understand. There's supposed to be a teaching involved. That example here is set in Ezra. And I want to ask you to please turn over to Ezra chapter 8, verse 1, real quickly. I am getting closer. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. I think my sermons are long. (laughs) Before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose and beside him at his right hand stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Urijah, Hilkiah, and Messiah and at his left hand Padiah, Mishael, Melchijah, Hashum, Hashbandana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was standing above all the people And when he opened it, all the people stood up, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hadijah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jezebad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites, look what they did, helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So it goes clear back into the book of Nehemiah. Christ demonstrated this in a most unique setting. Luke chapter 4. This, this is, I love this story. Luke chapter 4 Verse 17. Jesus stands in the synagogue in Nazareth. His own hometown. It's at the beginning of his ministry. We read in 17. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book. He found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Imagine the magnitude of that statement in that synagogue. Little synagogue, small little place actually, in Nazareth. They're sitting around 
And God comes in there. And He opens the Word of God and finds the place that tells about Him coming to earth and being who He will be. And these very, very fortunate men who get to hear Jesus pronounce who He is from the Word of God hear Him say in just a few words clearly who He is. They didn't respond well, but they had a tremendous opportunity. Then Paul says to him, Remember God's call on you. Verse 14, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Timothy was, first of all, gifted. This is not Timothy's natural strength. It is not his intellectual prowess. It is not his beautiful, charismatic personality. The Holy Spirit gifted Timothy in specific ways for ministry when he repented and believed in Christ. Upon the entry of the Holy Spirit into his life, gifts were given for glory for God. To give a clearer clearer picture of what Timothy had received, here is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are diversity of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. Now verse 27 then says, Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles and gifts of healings, helps, administrations, and varieties of tongues. Now we won't go into all of that um, manifestation of the Spirit's gifts at this point. But the point is that Timothy had received a gift of some kind from the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. It doesn't tell us specifically what that is. We can gather as we examine his life and his ministry that he had gifts of administration, he had gifts of preaching and teaching. But it doesn't tell us that specifically. Second thing that happened besides being gifted is that it was prophesied of him. The Spirit's gift was confirmed to Timothy by a prophecy given at some point in his life. And again, the Scripture doesn't tell us exactly when that was. But then it says, and Timothy was thirdly ordained. Timothy had been set apart and confirmed for ministry by the leadership of the church through the laying on of hands in prayer to dedicate him to the service of Christ. We go on to verse 15. Paul says, meditate on these things Give yourself entirely to them. And I want to especially emphasize this last verse or two. Especially for if you are listening and driving back from Texas or, or you hear this. You young men and women. You older men and women. These things that Paul shows us here are so vital. They are such keys. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them. Commit without reserve. Commit without reserve. We always want to hold back. We want to reserve this or or keep this just in case. We want to back plan. He's saying commit without reserve. Be all in. A more graphic translation is given in NASB. It reads, take pains with these things. The ESV says, practice these things. Diligently attend to them, translates a fellow by the name of Weist. Diligently attend to them. These things are so vital, Timothy, writes Paul. Do not take them lightly. In fact, Paul goes on deeper and says, in fact, give yourself entirely to them. This is a small word. It is is the. 
It's not complicated, yet it's a little bit difficult to get its full depth. Some of translations say, be absorbed, be immersed in them, be constantly engrossed in this Word of God. If I were to take a natural sponge, say, about the size of my Bible here, and I dipped it into a five-gallon bucket of water, it would very quickly become fully absorbed. And when I lifted that sponge out, there would be far more water weight there than there, is, than there was dry sponge weight. And when I squeeze that sponge, water will pour out of that sponge. Be absorbed in the Word of God. It will push other things out as that water fills, the Word of God fills you. And then when you are jostled, when you are squeezed, when opportunities are there, the Word of God will come forth. The real and literal meaning of this phrase is, the, is simply, be in them. Or as we say today, be all in. Be all in. I think that is one of the reasons why we have so much frustration at times with our spiritual lives. We have too much in reserve. Paul says, be all in. And if Timothy is all in with the word of God, all will see. It says that your progress may be evident to all. And this is refreshing. It really is comforting. Praise the Lord for how Paul wrote this. He used a P word to describe Timothy. And it is not the word perfect. It is the word progress. Timothy, if you commit yourself completely to these things, you won't be looked down on because you are young. Your elders will see progress in your life. We are never achieving perfection. We're not even close. But we grow and we progress if we hold fast to these things. Paul wrote even, Paul the Apostle, not that I have already attained or I am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. John, do you understand that? Press on so that you will lay hold of what God laid hold of you for. Matt, think of that. Press on so that you will become all that God laid hold of you. John, press on to be what God took hold of you for. Daniel, press on for that. Because God has laid hold of you for His purpose, not even yours. Let Him fulfill that in you. Press on with Him. Don't expect perfection. Don't expect perfection in the new young preachers you hear on Wednesday evenings or the older ones you hear on Sunday mornings. Brethren, don't expect it from yourself. But pray for and look for progress. If you or I live like Paul is exhorting Timothy, there will be progress. And so much so that it will be apparent to everyone. All will see. He guarantees him. And then in the final verse, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. Resolve and reward. Resolve. We can call that perseverance. Paul summarizes these instructions by telling his younger son in the faith, keep close watch on your own life and what you teach. These must be consistent. Do not fall into hypocrisy. Keep a good conscience. The writer of Hebrews writes, Pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things desiring to live honorably. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Ends Paul here. If you do these things, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. And again, this is one of those scriptures that sometimes can be misunderstood. It can sound like some way that you can work hard enough to be saved. And we know that that's an impossibility. We are saved by grace through faith. 
And it is not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any of us should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should do. That's so good. He has these things prepared for us to fulfill. So we know that he will give us the power and the opportunity to do the good works ahead. And we also know that we get to do them. Not only does he have them out there, but it's exciting to know that God will do good works through us. But at this particular statement, it says, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. John Calvin said, it is indeed true that it is God alone who saves. And not even the smallest part of his glory can rightly be transferred to men. But God's glory is in no way diminished by his using the labor of men in bestowing salvation. This ministry is itself entirely God's work. For it is he who makes men good pastors and leads them by his spirit and blesses their work so that it may not be in vain. Hendrickson said, it is also, or it is along the path of holy living and diligence in teaching and in watching over the life and teaching of others that salvation both present and future is obtained. If, if you will pursue the things Paul has laid out this morning, then you have been saved from sin's penalty. You are saved from its power now. And you will be saved from its presence in eternity someday. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for these scriptures this morning. There is so much here. I pray, Father, that, that you will use it sort of like a, like a marinade for us. That we will see all this and we will soak in it. And we will look for the different spices, for the different pieces that are in it. And let it change us, Lord, so that we, we will be a beautiful, a beautiful Savior to you. And we will bring glory to you. I pray for the young men and women in this assembly. Lord, it will not be but just a moment, and many of us older men and women will be gone. I pray for them that you will equip them for the good fight, that you will guard and strengthen their marriages so that they love and encourage each other and enable each other to fight the good fight. That you will lead them as they love their children and help them to train them up in the admonition, the love of Christ, in the word of God. Lord, I pray for the single men and women that you will give them strength to resist sin and to give themselves faithfully without without hesitation, with total abandonment for the cause of Christ. Lord, we don't, we don't want to be a little church that, that just gets along well and, and it looks nice. And We want to be a church that is in the midst of the battle, that we're in the throes of the warfare, and that you're doing effective things for your kingdom through the men and women here. For the older men and women, Father, guard us that we would not fail in some way and bring shame to the cause of Christ in our older years. That we would be young at heart and hungry to learn and grow and we would be like a Caleb at 80 and we would be ready to take mountains for you. Lord, be glorified. Please teach us these things. I feel so inept to, to explain and, and exhort and teach so much that your spirit is sufficient. So lead us, Father, for your glory and your honor. In your name we pray, amen.